You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kim. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed last month's episode about folklore at prehistoric sites. It generated some discussions about walking menhirs in France and witches' bottoms. But let's move swiftly on. Welcome to my guest, James Dilly. Hi, James. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you. Yourself? Yes, I'm good. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. You were on it years ago now, weren't you? What were we talking about last time? I feel like we were talking about another film. Was it Ardman's Early Man? Oh, yes, we did do that one. But also, didn't we talk about Mesol- Was it Mesolith, the graphic novel? Did I talk to you about that? Yeah. <laughs> was, was that the same show? Was it an earlier one? I think I- that might have been an earlier one, yes. Yeah. Because I think the last one I was in department, I can vividly remember sitting in department with all of my colleagues that were out after a uh, seminar at the pub and me thinking... And you, ah, the dedication. Thank you. I know, I know. (laughs) You forewent the pub for for prehistories. Oh, that's very good. I mean, it's great to have you on the podcast again. You have a very specific set of skills and expertise and knowledge, which is really key, particularly today. But when we're talking about about prehistory, I mean, you've made a lot of a lot of the stuff that we talk about. And yeah, anyway, let, perhaps you can introduce yourself. I will congratulate you on air. Well done. You've just passed your viva for your PhD. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's uh, after many, many years hard work in the build-up, yeah. even before the PhD, as a young kid thinking, yeah, I want to be a doctor in archaeology. It, it sort of happened now. And it, it's like, oh, well, I can you know, have a nice rest and you know, go on holiday <laughs> and think about all the wonderful things I can do. And uh, then think, mm, yeah, well, I can probably... It's a pandemic. It, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's terrible. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a bit of a bit of a different world now, isn't it? Tell us about what your PhD research was on. So my PhD research was looking at quite a specific time of the Paleolithic, and uh, as many people know, the Paleolithic is a seriously long period of time, right at the start of the human timeline. Um, mm. And uh, for Europe, it covers well over a million years ago, up until around. 13 or so thousand years ago, although although there's some give or take depending on where you are. Hmm. I'm looking at a period that ranges from about 40,000 to 30,000 years ago. But again, there's some give and take where you are. And it's a sub period of the upper Paleolithic. And the upper Paleolithic is when uh, modern humans like us are knocking around in Europe. And the sub period I'm looking at is called the Orignation, which is right at the start of the upper Paleolithic. So you've got these pioneer anatomically modern humans coming into Europe through the Balkans and making their way westwards. And I was particularly interested in one of the iconic artifacts, one of the type artifacts from this particular time. And it's not a stone tool uh, and certainly not a bronze tool that uh, I'm generally more well known for. It's actually a piece of antler or many pieces of antler that have been made into spear points and particularly the, the spear points I am looking at and the ones that are well known from the Orignation are called split base points. And they're, they're pretty simple. They kind of look like pointy clothes pegs, I suppose, that um, <laughs> just fit onto a beveled piece of wood as a peg would just fit onto a washing line or you could use it to 
peg a bit of cloth to something to make a den as a kid. It's pretty simple, really. But I was quite interested as to why you have stone spear points before and you have stone spear points afterwards. So why do you get antler spear points? It it just seems a strange thing to go for. Not Mm. unheard of, but strange for it to be so consistent through an entire period that lasts around 10,000 years over a huge geographic area. Mm. It struck me quite early on during the research that during the Orignation, it would have been a pretty difficult time to live in particularly northwestern Europe simply for the climatic conditions in places like central France that today we might go on holiday for the warm temperatures would have had an average July temperature of five degrees during the Ignatian. <laughs> wow. And that gives you some idea of how cold it might have been in the winter months. But that comes mm. with a lot of implications that because it's so cold, that really limits what can grow in that type of environment. When you think of places that have really cold environments for most of the year if they're not complete arctic tundra they're at least boreal tundra or just open steppe grassland Mm. now the one thing we often think about when we think of hunter gatherers or stone age camps are these big teepee like structures and people running around with great big long spears with (laughs) fires all over the place and you just couldn't have had that you you could not have just burned fires just for the fun of it, just to have a fire, because there just wouldn't have been the firewood. It just mm. trees could not grow on an environment that had such a short growing season with such poor soil. And certainly for spear shafts that would have to be made of nice long flexible bits of wood, something like ash or hazel, just wouldn't have grown in that environment. So mm. what does that mean for these people who would have been hunting things like reindeer or bison or horses? We've got the spear tips, but I think the implication that has been missed totally in the literature is that sometimes, rather than just purely focusing on the, I suppose, to bring back a phrase that is often used in various archaeological circles, the sexy part of archaeology, whether it be sexy hand axes, which has, of course has been uh, mm, frowned yes. upon somewhat as a theory, because you know, spear points are pointy and, and you can fit a typology and you can look at the morphology and not that there's anything wrong with that, but it means that you could potentially be missing the key part of something like a spear because you can have a spear head, but it's not really a spear if it's just the spear head. It's just a short pointy piece of something that could be a knife. Whereas Mm -hmm. just a spear shaft can still be a spear, as we know from the much earlier spears from places like Clacton or Schöningen Mm -hmm. in Germany, which are just fire-hardened wooden spears. So my, I guess, angle of the PhD or a key part of it was to say, well, hang on, guys, just because, you know, you assume that these things would have existed, perhaps the greater implication is that they made these split-based antler points not because they were hunting reindeer in particular, but because they were actually trying to preserve these really valuable wooden shafts that they'd have to find somewhere. And at least if the split is in the antler rather than the wooden shaft that you typically think of, then the spearhead is more likely to break on impact and the spear shaft is not. Wow. Um, With stone points, they're usually set into a split wooden shaft, aren't they? Yeah, with a notch. So that's where weakness is going to be. Yeah, I see. That's fascinating. Because of those climactic conditions, it completely changes the tool set. Uh, It's an amazing kind of fix for that problem. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think although very ingenious. Well, yeah, th- this is it. The the if you look at it in quite a narrow view, yes, it it's a a very clever way of getting around a problem and experimentally testing these spears both in a throwing range and firing them into ballistics gel. They're extremely good at making deep penetrative wounds into well, ballistics gel as our proxy and you know, it must have been yeah, efficient. Yeah. But we can actually start to look at the broader picture of humans coming across a problem that would severely impact their lifestyle and managing resources and making key survival decisions to try and combat them. And, you know, various people have uh, looked at that over the years, quite famous anthropologists and archaeologists have looked at the way that hunter-gatherers have moved around and networked seasonally and looked at how they've managed tools and equipment, but not with more of an ancient view, I suppose, to European prehistory, they've either had a view to more recent groups around the world um, in places mm. like uh, Australia or Africa, um, and perhaps occasionally suggested, oh, well, people might have done this in European prehistory, but not actually had a really high resolution view on the archaeology. And in some mm. cases, just picked apart some previous experimental research, which has been good. But in some cases, some researchers were using very narrow shafts of poplar as their shafts for testing the spear points. And you know, poplar's famous for making matchwood, which is very liable to splitting. That, that's why they used it. Yes. That is just totally the wrong material to use. But it was just through lack of consideration. And it, yeah, yeah. It sounds simple when you say it. But actually, again, it's going back to this key thing that to actually get into the mindset of these people, to understand them, we have to try and ha- have a broader view of the implications and not just think, well, this is a spear. It might do this if we do this with it. And it's similar to this from this site. You've got to think of the uh, bigger picture sometimes. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. It seems like a really basic thing to get the, you know, different woods have different properties. I and mean, it's just not not good enough to have any kind of wooden shaft so you you had fun throwing lots of spears at uh, ballistics gel then yeah well (laughs) unfortunately not so much at ballistics gel and and this was something we actually talked about during the viva because one of the key points that kept being brought up is well why why didn't you just keep testing and test you know make more tests and right at the start of the phd i pointed out that if you wanted to create this real world scenario where you're actually testing these things, you'd A, have to go to some grassland somewhere like Mongolia or somewhere around the steppe. Um, mm. You'd then have to find some reindeer and bring them in. Um, and you'd then have to try and hunt them and knock them over with these things, which A, is very expensive, but more importantly, is not very ethical. Yes. So, you know, you're never going to perfectly reconstruct these scenarios. But what I tried to do was break down those components, I suppose, and look at the way that these spears fly. Do they need stabilization in the form of feathers um, to give them some drag like arrows do um, as fletching? Mm. Do they break on impact with just the ground if it's a missed shot? And then once you've worked out these things fly like javelins, that's fine. You can then move on to impact and then you can start to use ballistics gel or harder surfaces to see what that key part of the impact would look like and by breaking down those sections you can actually start to have more of a critical view of those points and i'm sure you know if you had all the money in the world because i was self-funded you know you could probably devise some very clever 
experimental tests, but that wasn't the main focus of the thesis. It was actually looking at the environmental evidence as well, the charcoal data, the pollen that mm. existed from mm. the orignation or in terms of a climatic stage, it's known as marine oxygen isotope stage three. That was a very cold period, as I said. So there's lots to look at, and that wasn't a key part. And I suppose you could have gone at various angles with a PhD, and a good PhD is something that once you've finished, you can make several papers out of, and, and that's what it does. But um, yeah, at the end, it was kind of like, well, I could have done some of that. I could have done a bit more of that. And it's, where, where do you stop, really? And that, that is yeah, indeed, yeah. You know, you're not going to yeah. do a lot of work. Yeah, but you are pretty handy, aren't you? You have not only done all of this, these experiments as well as all the research, but you make lots of replica artifacts for loads of people and sell them. You make them for museums. You make them for TV shows, including you know, well, the whole kit really, clothing, and from all sorts of periods. As you said, you make bronze axes and swords and knives, as well as doing earlier stone age stuff how did you get into all of that well probably when i was about nine or ten i've always lived in royston in north hertfordshire and if anyone's listening to uh, this from royston north hertfordshire um, then you'll have some idea of the uh, the amount of chalk and flint that we have here yeah um, big up royston very, yeah very very deep chalk deposits here i think it's 900 meters in places if not more Whoa. um it, it's pretty serious stuff if you're putting any any foundations in which we had to do recently for a new workshop that was backbreaking although an antler pick and a bronze pick worked quite well but uh, yeah. that, that's Fantastic. another story <laughs> but i can remember pestering my dad to help me smash open a piece of flint and quite rightly like a responsible parent was questioning and the purpose of this and pointing out that flint is sharp and dangerous and i didn't realize at the time that of course there's lots of broken bits of flint around the field but i wanted to see one being broken in front of me not really with a connection to making tools i was just interested as to what was inside Mm. Um, and at the time I was part of my local young archaeologist group in Cambridge and they offered holidays around the UK in Nottingham and uh, Cornwall and for the Cornwall one it was focused towards prehistory and experimental archaeology mm. and me who enjoyed like most kids playing with Lego and uh, banging nails into old bits of wood when you're allowed to out in the garage being able to try something that was a mix between that practical making side and the uh, history that I was starting to become more interested in, particularly prehistory, was the perfect mix. And it was there that I was introduced to things like flint napping to see or bronze casting. Uh, and from that point on, decided, right, well, that's what I want to do. And as soon as I came back from the holiday, went straight out into the garden, started mashing any piece of flint I could find with limited <laughs> success, but it was a start. Um, and from then on, I just kept going with it through school and secondary school and into college um just started well i say started kept breaking up pieces of flint and finding bigger and bigger pieces in local fields and then having to go and find quarries more flint yeah. and then it must have been about age 16 my dad helped me make my website ancient craft which i was 10 years old two years ago now but i started to get requests from museums in the nearby area for displays of flint napping or replica tools and it just started to take off really 
Yeah, it's amazing. As you said, it's, it is what it is. Make replicas that go mostly around the UK, but often into Europe and outside of Europe. Um, other for museums all the time and doing bits of media stuff. It's just crazy and very, very varied, but it, it keeps me occupied. And one day I might be out casting <laughs> bronze swords or the next day I'd be filming in Scotland somewhere or yeah. it's it's mad but you get to see an awful lot of the country so uh, yeah, it's fantastic. so many people and get to see so many amazing sites and artifacts I wouldn't wouldn't change it for anything yeah in fact we bumped into each other didn't we in the city of London where I work um which was the wor- weirdest place that I would have ever thought I would come across you because you know when I whenever I follow all of your stuff on Twitter and what have you and you're always in the wilds of Scotland or something <laughs> and you were just um who've been invited to go and see a nice find from Havering I, I was. Now, as you rightly said, I'm usually found in my normal habitat in the wild, so <laughs> you know, amongst the wild haggis and that sort of thing yeah. around the hilltops. But um, <laughs> yeah, I was invited among a few other specialists in Bronze Age metalwork to go and preview the Havering hoard. Although it had been found in 2018, it had gone through conservation, and this was the first time it had come to the Museum of London in preparation for their new exhibition, which is now at the Museum of London Docklands, not the Museum of London over by Bank. It's over at the Docklands, which is near Canary Wharf. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it was a large late Bronze Age enclosure where uh, several hordes were found very close together and became part of the same hoard as they were pretty much part of the same deposit that are what are known as a, a founder's hoard. So sometimes you get hoards of gold work or hoards of complete objects. Um, this was a hoard of mostly broken up objects, which is usually associated with metalworking, where uh, a metalwork mm. would break up these pieces of metal into a convenient size to fit back into a crucible for melting down and starting again. And I was brought in to look at these 450-odd objects to give my metal workers or metal casters uh, opinion on uh, how some of these were made or broken so it was quite an honor and very very special to see some of these objects and pick them up and get a really good look at them <laughs> yeah it's uh, I, I was very jealous that day <laughs> I, I was walking down to my roman bathhouse which is lovely of course but it is rome and it's oh, kind of yeah, i've had to learn to love the romans and oh, uh, so you <laughs> you do i'm getting there i'm getting there <laughs> but so we are going to be talking about this film iceman which was released in 2017 and basically you know i thought you were a really good person to talk about this because you have studied Ertzi and his kit you've remade a lot of his kit several times over i expect you made me bits and pieces that are similar to what he was uh, carrying and then in 2017 this film about the iceman was released and i thought yay finally his story is being told this was produced by a german company and it's mainly with german actors but that doesn't really matter it's not in german which we'll come to a little bit later it did take a while for it to get to the uk though that was the issue so finally got hold of a dvd i think last year and then things got in the way of actually recording this so it is based on Ertzi 
the guy found in the Ertztal Alps in 1991. I was 13 when Ertzi was found and I was blown away by the discovery of, of this man frozen under a glacier and then suddenly discovered by by hikers. I was really impressionable at age 13 and he and Ertzi is the reason that I became an archaeologist, basically. I was hooked from that moment on. You, I'm a bit older than you, aren't I, James? Well, yes, uh, I think so. <laughs> you could have ummed and ahed a bit more about that. Um, well, it's only so, going by you saying that you were... Uh... Hey, I was th- I was thirteen when he was discovered. I, I think I, I was yet to uh, appear on on the earth. You weren't even born yet. No, oh my goodness! No, wow. But um, so we're going to um, talk a bit more about the film after this break. Hi, we're back now, James. What was it about Ertzi that was so amazing? I mean, obviously you learned about it after you were born at some point. <laughs> but what makes his discovery or or his his that particular site, what makes him and his kit so exciting for archaeologists? I suppose to try and sum it up briefly to encourage anyone who somehow doesn't know about Ertzi <laughs> the Iceman because they themselves have been living under a rock... He is probably one of the most important archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. Obviously came right at the end of the 20th century, 1991, but it's the only prehistoric human remains that have been found with such a complete assemblage of artefacts around them because usually when human remains are found in a grave or wherever, we might get some pottery, some stone, very occasionally some bits of organic, usually just the hard organics like bone or antler, ornamentation or other bits. But with Ertzi, we had everything. There's, hmm. There can't have been very much that wasn't preserved. To have string, tree bark, his eyes and his eye colour, just everything. It's it's hard to sort of put it in to one very rapid, this is exactly the uh, top things that were found with Ertzi. It, it is a unique find to have a person with all their kit. It, I guess the best way to imagine it is if someone went out hiking with their modern camping rucksack and all the kit that you'd get from a camping shop and keeled over um, nearly five and a half thousand years ago and everything was preserved because they went straight into a freezer. We just mm. don't have anything like that from any other grave from anywhere near that kind of time. No, because it's not really a grave, is it? it? He he, because he died alone and was never his his body and his kit was never curated by family and and then dis- they chose what to put in his grave as well. He's buried with everything that he had on him, which is oh, not buried. He was he obviously died and was then covered accidentally by a glacier uh, with everything yeah and, and so it's not it's not really a burial as such and I th- it's almost like he it shows more about life than yeah. it does about death yeah exactly um i mean quite early on during the investigation there were suggestions that he was actually intentionally buried and it was just luck that yeah and have the other objects and part of that persuasion was the fact that because the ice had moved an awful lot because he was found within the uh, Utsal Glacier, you could plot out where a nearby moraine had moved around within the rocky 
gorge that he was found in and scattered him and all of his objects. So how can mm. you say it wasn't necessarily a uh, particular burial? Yeah. But it, it seemed very, very unlikely that it was a burial. Uh, contemporary burials have actually some similar artifacts which have survived, things like copper axes um, mm. or arrowheads or uh, flint knives, but they are in a much better condition, particularly the stonework. They look as if they've been made to be buried um, with very little evidence of reuse, whereas Ertzi's kit, particularly again for the flint work, had clearly been reflaked and uh, resharpened over several episodes leading up to the point when uh, he met his untimely demise. So it's mm-hmm. quite unlike other burials. And the fact that he was so high up um, at 11,000 feet, that is again quite unlike other burials. Yes, absolutely. It seems like quite a way to go in order to bury somebody. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, there are other organic people there are bits of people aren't there like the bog yeah. bodies of denmark and stuff or ireland or or cheshire again they 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 seem to have been almost stripped of a lot of their kind of personal possessions before being thrown in these bogs and then uh, Possibly also it's to do with when they were discovered, because a lot of bog bodies were discovered, say, in the 19th century or early 20th century, when preservation wasn't quite at the same, you know, the, the actual technology to preserve wasn't quite as good. So he, um, all of this organic stuff that he's got is just so well preserved so that it can be studied by you know, so different specialists. So this this film, it's lovely to, and, and so much has been done on each bit of his kit and on his body, on what was in his stomach, on his DNA, x-rays on, on the body, so much that, that you can build up a picture, a story of his life. So this is where this film comes in, basically, this idea that of what happened to him. So he was up, as you say, at 11,000 feet on, in the Ertstel Alps. That's where he was found. But where did he actually come from? And there was, when he was first discovered, there was a bit of a, a border dispute, wasn't there, about whether he was actually across the border in Switzerland or Italian. Um, yeah. And it was found to how the the border was actually rediscovered <laughs> uh, because of Ertzi and um, and he became and it was clear that that actually he'd been found just inside Italy yeah but also his DNA was quite interesting or oh, was it stable isotope analysis I can't remember yeah, which it was yeah yeah that that basically showed he was from northern Italy what we now call northern Italy yeah I mean there's there's a lot. Well, even from the discovery when he was first found and eventually recovered. And I recommend having a look on YouTube for some quite old PBS documentaries that look at the Iceman mystery because it actually shows uh, footage of the recovery. And if you particularly like prehistory and archaeology and uh, the Iceman discovery, you will wince watching this because they just pull out the body and try and wiggle it out and use ice picks <laughs> to free him. Um, and they did an awful lot of damage in the process because they apparently didn't quite realise that this wasn't just a more modern, unfortunate accident from a hiker or skier. It was only a little bit later that someone realised when they pulled out a flint knife that this is probably not a modern burial. Um, Mm. But they had had a lot of problems with bad weather windows trying to recover the remains. There, There was just a whole number of 
ridiculous things going on that you would have thought, really? You, you know, you didn't think there. Um, but we <laughs> went over to the uh, Innsbruck University uh, forensic lab first. And it was at that point that Comrade Spindler realized that these remains were several thousand years old, um, possibly near to 4,000 years old. And, and of course, he is actually older than that, uh, 5,300 yes, yeah. years old. Mm. Um, but uh, as you said, he was actually found, I think it was 92 or 93 meters inside the Italian border. Just. Yeah, very, very close. But looking at the stable isotopes that were in his teeth showed that he only lived within that nearby area radius of only about 32 kilometers. So not very far at all. In terms of his DNA that you mentioned, his only living descendants are in very, very isolated communities around Europe in places like Sardinia. Other than that, there's very little left of his descendancy. Yeah. It's interesting how you do get these examples, whether it be Neolithic farmers from much earlier being replaced or should I say hunter-gatherers being replaced by Neolithic farmers, mm. uh, their descendants just disappear. I know mm. there's that famous example of uh, a relative of the Cheddar Man actually being found in Cheddar. Um, yes. <laughs> there have been a few researchers that have called into question that research, as it was done quite some time ago, to say the least. Yeah. And of course, we've got the more recent evidence that looks that's shown what Cheddar Man looks like, which is a, another topic but there's just so much uh, about Ertzi that we know and there, there will always be new bits coming out and you mentioned the contents of his stomach and I think one of the most amazing things that really gives you that really detailed picture of what his last day or so would have been like is that the his stomach w wasn't seen for quite some time they couldn't find it and the reason was that it was pushed up behind his lungs due to the ice pressure and it was just a case of, well we can't find it and we don't want to be too invasive in looking for it because it will just cause damage um, yeah when they finally did find it and were able to open it um to see what was inside it they found einkorn grains uh, and einkorn is very early kind of wheat or the first kind of wheat really that would have grown on the arid hills of um, central turkey around anatolia in that area that eventually came across to um western europe he also had uh, ibex meat, which is a type of wild goat. Um, he also had some small pieces of fern leaf, which is not a edible plant. If you eat a lot of it, it will give you pretty bad stomach upset, which raised some eyebrows. But there was also a small amount of elk meat as well. But my particular favorite out of that whole story is that um, upon closer inspection of the uh, two types of meat that were in his stomach, they realized that the meat had not been cooked. It, it could not have been boiled over 100 degrees or even near to 100 degrees because the cell structure was still in good condition that showed it hadn't been boiled. However, there was a very, very high carbon particulate count. What does that tell us? That Well, rather than cooking the meat, he was eating smoked meat. Now, that mm -hmm. is really, really detailed information about a near 5,500-year-old body that you can actually not just say, oh, well, he would have eaten this, but this is how they prepared the food. Yes. Uh, it's, it's just amazing, really. That is amazing. I don't think that detail made it into the film. It seems like that I was a bit disappointed with the cooking, actually, which seemed to be stick it on a stick and put it in the fire, which seemed a little bit 
the whole setup that they created about Ertz's life felt a bit primitive in yeah. that pejor- the pejorative way that the houses had looked at the beginning very flimsy um yeah. the the i mean Ertzi's outfit is is really quite some quite a construction it's a tailored outfit basically made yeah. out of yes it's made out of skins but a lot of work has gone into it but everybody's hair was messy i hate that i really do it gets to me and they were all dirty and the as i say the 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 food culture was not there now i know italian food is like the uh, nearly probably the best in the world according to me nowadays but uh, it wasn't a back then according to this film <laughs> which is very strange and you know what else right at the beginning of the film um he is having sex with his presumably his mate his wife whatever you would call it whilst his son plays flute in the corner which was interesting it's kind of like yeah how i've often thought how did people have sex in prehistory anyway we won't get into that too much but it was the only time where you could have seen his tattoos and they really didn't didn't show that or didn't show him getting any tattoos which i thought they would have in the film because i think the discovery of Ertz's tattoos was such a a big thing. I mean, um, don't you think? I think yeah, that definitely. that was a yeah. bit of a missed opportunity. Yeah, and there's, I guess, to briefly talk about the tattoos is that again, like like much of the um, the assemblage, um, there's nothing quite like it. Um, and no, several later bodies with tattoos on them, but not from this age. And uh, again, if, if you haven't, for people listening, have haven't come across the Iceman's tattoos, have a little look, but they're mostly lines um, in quite hmm. specific areas that are concentrated around joints or areas where you might feel pain, which I've often thought is quite interesting as someone who does flint napping and similar tasks is that sometimes I can feel aches and pains in specific areas, but on the other side, and, and I'm right-handed, so that may say something about Utsi's handedness. But mm, uh, That's interesting. When they x-rayed his body, they found that he had he did have a, quite a bit of osteoarthritis in his joints as well, didn't they? So, because yeah. he was a bit, it was it was it was quite old. Uh, I mean, for that time, it was probably around forty, fifty years old when he died. And yeah, he had obviously had a very hard life, as you'd expect. So these tattoos may have been used as almost like a, a medicinal thing to try and combat the pain in the joints. Obviously, it probably didn't work. <laughs> yeah. But it's all down his spine, in his there's his wrist, his knees, his ankles. They're covered in little as you say lines or crosses or or circles i actually got a few of his tattoos done a few years ago for myself just to mark the fact that he is important to my whole life really uh, but not quite as many as he had because it was oh, was it 61 i think he had it's, yeah i think it's low 60s it- yeah they, they keep on finding them though don't they <laughs> yeah, and it, it's, m- most of his left buttock is missing due to the interesting recovery style so there may yeah. have once been more right yeah so it, to start with i was a little bit like disappointed in that well I, I know i was hoping that they would show that later but they get into the the kind of the story of the last days of of Ertzi. um and throughout their speaking they don't speak a lot 
actually. Um, there's a lot of grunting, uh, which feels a little bit like some early films about cavemen in that very stereotypical way. But they do use a language and they're using the Raetic language throughout with no subtitles. And they basically say at the beginning, you don't really need to know what they're saying. You can kind of figure it out, which was fine. That was absolutely fine. It would have been strange, I think, if it had been dubbed into one's native language. That would have been a bit odd. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely remember some specific scenes where there was a distinct lack of talking. Yeah. And it, it, awkward, to almost an extent, it was getting a bit awkward. Yeah, um, I thought uh, so. I thought that when he met that couple. Yeah, that's the particular scene that I was thinking of, where they were just sort of sat around the campfire and just looked at each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it no was very way strange. It would have been like that, you know, if if people had such a complex society where they're exchanging things over a long distance, making uh, quite stylized pottery, but can only fathom a handful of words out of the very limited vocabulary that they they could have only had for this film it just doesn't seem right no no it doesn't i think they were what i would love to see is a film that doesn't play to our wider public preconceptions about prehistory in the stone age you know although of course he's in the copper age anyway and actually show them as um sophisticated and complex as they were and, and with skills amazing skills to create beautiful objects useful objects objects you know houses that probably didn't have gaps in the walls yeah. and uh, and let the I don't, well yeah maybe he's shown at the beginning as kind of a, some kind of priest i feel don't you don't you th- i think because someone dies in childbirth yeah. a woman dies in childbirth and then he uh they they bury her i didn't i i haven't actually i just thought to myself they put her in a cave and okay. did various things over her body. And he took then his whole, his, sorry, these are spoilers here. His whole village is then, is then um, massacred by these raiders. And he is off in the mountains. He comes back and he deals with all the dead bodies and takes them into this cave. And I actually, I haven't looked up whether or not in Northern Italy, they have cave burials in the uh, Neolithic and Chalcolithic and Bronze Age. I have a, a feeling that that's possible. I don't know if you know that. I think, but that's. Yeah, I think that is the case in some instances, okay. but it's not uniform. Yeah. Okay. But at least, but he he seemed to be the one doing all this big ceremony and calling to the I don't know a sky god maybe or something in that in that bit. Yeah. Well- with the special special rock in its wooden box, which is the yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that because they don't show you that, right? That that is like for me, it felt like that a bit. In, is it in Pulp Fiction where they open the boot of the car and it they get this gold sheen over their faces, yeah. but they won't show you what's in the back of the car? Yeah. And it felt like that in this box. They he opens the box, but you can't see what's in it right until the end. I thought that was a bit like like the, like Pulp Fiction, which is a bit of a, a strange thing to to add into the film. But there you go. <laughs> yeah, and it, the opening bit just felt a bit rickety. I think it was all the filter that they used to produce the film was interesting. It was very washed out, and I don't yeah. think that helped. Um, it, it felt be. like the Revenant, didn't it? It was yeah, exactly yeah. The Revenant set in the Chalcolithic. Yeah, and it 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 was good for the scenery, 
but I don't think it did any favours for just the, the quality the of the film at all. If they were purely going for cinematography, then you know, I'm not saying it's a good style, it's just a style, but it's a strange choice. And as you said, it's just sort of houses that look as if they're sort of summer houses that were a bit, you know, quickly put up and put together when everyone looking a bit shabby. It's It was disappointing, as you said. Yeah, yeah, it was a little bit disappointing. Let's take a break now. And when we come back, maybe we'll try and find some of the positive aspects of this film. So let's think of some of the positive aspects of this film then, James. Obviously, Ertzi is very well known for his personal possessions, his suite of objects and clothing that he had with him when he died. Have they got those things right? Yeah, I think so. And they've got a lot of them in there and they show a lot Mm. of them being used. Some of the famous objects, of course, include his axe, his knife, his backpack, the grass mat or cape or both, the net, uh, his quiver, birch bark containers, one of which was carrying an ember, which we see in the film. And of course, the uh, clothing that he's wearing as well. There's a lot there, which is really good. uh, Yeah, at one point when he goes up into the... Yeah, when he goes up into the snow line it's, and um, he puts his fur hat on, I was like, "Yay! Let's go!" He's, <laughs> they're getting it all out now, and he's get. I think he puts his special shoes on at that point as well. Yeah. They had like a net around the shoe, didn't they? Yeah. Can you talk over the shoe? Because I, I always get it slightly wrong about where the grass was and the fur was and the net was. <laughs> well, the construction of the shoe has been reinterpreted several times, but the, the I base think that's why I'm confused. Is, yeah, the base is uh, quite thick cowhide leather with a net uh, that's connected to it with uh, a leather cord that's sewn round the edge of this thick leather sole. And the net, it would have been in the shape of the, a foot. And it's that that would yeah. have held the shoe on the foot as uh, the person walked. And then there was a leather cap that covered the front. There may have been a leather back into it, but uh, it hasn't been found. One of the shoes is in very good condition and the other is not in great condition at all because it was badly damaged. Yeah, um, But within that net was uh, quite densely stuffed grass that would have kept his feet warm and uh, having made several pairs of the shoes and tested them in deep snow they do work really really well uh, that yeah that's really good grass both keeps the heat in to keep you warm but it stops the heat escaping and that may initially sound like the same thing but if too much heat escapes when you're in snowy conditions, then the snow will melt around whatever you're wearing and you'll get cold very quickly. So, so it insulates the Yeah, it's just it insulates your foot and it also insulates the snow from your foot. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's really good. Yeah, I mean obviously socks hadn't been invented at that point or at least uh, that's what we assume given that he was wearing the, this grass but maybe just grass was better than having a sock i've worn prehistoric shoes with grass in and it is it does make it much nicer to wear um and that's just in lowland con- very very mild conditions so his his kit is shown pretty well. I have always loved the um, over tunic that he wears. That is, it's almost like it's striped pelts. They've kind of taken wide strips of a black sheep, I think, and then one of a slightly lighter color. Yeah, and sewn them together um, in in a series of wide stripes, which is almost. It seems really like 
it's a fashion item. Dare we say decorative. Decorative, exactly. And it does, it's just like, oh, the rest of it is showing them just surviving. And then this is a, be- a beautiful item to, yeah. we- to be wearing. It must all be sort of a, a shade of brown in prehistory. That's the only colour you're allowed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that brings me back to the the couple that he meets. So, so whilst he's tracking the men who have who's killed all his family, he's he actually managed to um, rescue a baby, and he comes across this couple who are living in the foothills of the Alps. And they're on their own. It's not a couple though, because I think it's a father and his daughter. There's a big age difference, and then she makes a pass at Ertzi. So I assume that they're not married anyway and he gives them the baby but the man what i wanted to say is the man in that couple is wearing a beautiful beautiful tunic made out of something white pure white it was and i'm like really (laughs) was it gonna be what would that be i can't even imagine what it would be made out of unless it was like an astrakhan type thing but with but with white yeah, I wool mean, get, instead of black. I don't know. You do get. I mean, sheep would have been around more goat-like, I suppose, and uh, you would have occasionally got uh, mutations that would have been white. I mean, that's how mm. the white was originally encouraged to be more common. It was just through mutation, and it may have been based on that that uh, he wore it because it was uh, valuable in in that sense. But you would have occasionally mm. got white goats or ibex as we occasionally get white deer as well you know you will always get yes, I suppose so. mutations i think i did see kind of almost like curls on it so whether it was uh, or unless it was it was supposed to be a, a knitted thing but i'm not entirely sure that knitting was available anyway but it was quite it's just a very striking piece of clothing that i really loved and i think it was it was chosen specially for that character because he's quite a well-known italian actor actually and did you know i'm just trying to remember his name sorry this is terrible i should franco nero that's it did you know that he was in die hard 2 I didn't know he was in Die Hard 2. I knew he's, he's been in an awful lot of Django Unchained. Uh, oh, yeah. He, so he's been in loads of those things. But he was the General Esperanza who was in Die Hard 2, the guy on the plane. Really? Yeah, isn't that amazing? I think that's fantastic. But, done so many <laughs> but yes, big but, films and this. Yeah, and so many other big films. Mass, really, really famous actor. Very striking blue eyes as well. And yeah, I think yeah. maybe that's why they chose this white to really. And his his hair's all white. And it was he was just such a dramatic figure. And I wanted to know more about him and his his. He he seemed much more. Um, I don't know, engaging than. Ertzy. Anyway, there you go. Uh, <laughs> um, back to the positives. So, back to the positives. Yeah, so he goes after these guys and um, does finally catch up with them eventually. Um, and what's interesting, I think, is the the need for this, for Ertzy to have survived the raid and avenged the deaths of his family and friends before he himself dies so he does manage i'm sorry this is a spoiler but he does manage to catch up with these guys and then there's a really amazing scene i think uh where they're fighting with their copper axes i just i i I mean clearly you can fight with an axe it's it can be a weapon i just i don't know if there's any evidence of this are there any 
that would be a big job to, to look through all of the evidence of uh, pathology on any skeletons of that date to look for specifically axe wounds. But I, I don't know. What did you think of that? I mean, they had to, that Ertzi had several distinctive injuries that were linked to fighting um, shortly before he died. And they had to get them in there somewhere. Otherwise, that would have been a major part that was overlooked. Uh huh. Okay. The arrow in his left shoulder, which is always mentioned, he also had a severe cut to the inside of his hand, which is consistent with self defense um, right. and blunt force trauma to his head, which must have been in some kind of close contact with someone with a stick or something but i suppose in the fighting sense whether people would have been fighting and even we go back into the early neolithic let alone the uh, change to the uh, chalcolithic or copper age people have been bowling each other over for thousands of years before yeah. we get to this point so yeah it's i i like that they included that bit um, and a couple of other bits because what i didn't want them to show was that you know, it it was it was nice and peaceful during the uh, the late Neolithic, uh, Chalcolithic, yeah, and that yeah. uh, you know people got along and uh, they helped each other. So, well, no, no, they they didn't. I'm afraid that people were nasty to each other and and have been for a very long time. I I didn't again like the other camp when he sort of stumbled across this other camp that had its one tent. It was it was just all a bit like, oh, let's quickly throw together this scene and we'll just put this teepee here and the one near the beginning. The, the um second camp when he fights the I think it's two guys that are left and the the people oh, that yeah. he's pursuing the, he comes across their family and sort of sleeps in their tent. It's just. Yeah, it's just one tent, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a bender covered with hides, it looks yeah, like. It's a bit... Uh, bit strange, it feels a bit really. Mesolithic. <laughs> yeah, it feels a bit Mesolithic, but the whole, apart from that fight, which they had to put in somewhere, it just felt a bit, I don't know, that they didn't... I think one, one of the key things that people pull apart in the reviews is, is the plot, because yeah. you know, you've pretty much got an open canvas as to what you go with. At some point, he's got to get hit a couple of times and then shot in the back and then found up somewhere quite high and that's about it other than that you can pretty much put in whatever you like to within reason yeah i think it it, it definitely takes away from what could have been something quite good from as we were saying the really good representation representation rather of the kit even to show him setting up his uh, trapping net uh, which they found yeah, fragments of it. they go into really quite specific detail um, with some of the key bits, and then there's just there just happens to be a plot in the background. Yeah, I think that's how it feels. It's, and it, he happens to fall down. It's, when he fell down in this ice hole, yeah, I felt like, oh, is that the end of the film? Is that where yeah. he dies? But it was like, no, but so much hasn't happened yet. Yeah. He hasn't been shot. What's going on? And that was so odd. And it would, and he'd only saved the life of someone else earlier so that person could come and rescue him from that cave and i think the only reason they put that ice cave in there was so that they could show him trying to use the copper axe as an ice pick yeah. and that and i think that was the only reason that was in there yeah, and also oh they're showing that he didn't have any gloves so because he blows in his hands he get his hands gets very cold um he doesn't have any gloves were gloves not invented yet and then they must have been i mean i guess that's a good point to dis discuss Ertzi as a find is that to be up 11,000 feet that we look at the things that he was actually wearing the leggings with a loincloth 
mm. no tunic, but this coat, uh, mm. and then this whether it be a grass cape or a mat. That's not, uh, as well as the shoes. That is not a lot to be wearing in quite cold conditions. Mm. That really is not very much that's going to keep the cold out. And having worn some of that said replica kit before, when when you don't have full pairs of trousers. You know, it gets a bit drafty, and certainly if if you're a bit cold, it's- he basically is wearing chaps, isn't he? And yeah. then he has a loincloth that folds over the top of his belt in the front and in the back, so very breezy. I would have thought uh, in between. I suppose you know it's been speculated whether he was a, a shepherd or something, so he was going up on the mountain. But he's not, as you say, not not actually fully prepared for that kind of altitude. I mean, he could easily have, he should have had his gloves on a string up, up, you know, up his sleeves and then he wouldn't have lost them. Mm. I don't know whether this is of any bearing really, but um, at Hallstatt salt mine, which obviously is a bit later, even in the late Bronze Age mine, they don't have gloves. They have these palm covers that are just bits of hide with a fur on, I think, with the with a hole in it where you can put your thumb so they don't so yeah. that's how you keep them on. And then when you get the Iron Age levels at Hallstatt, they've got proper mittens, almost as if they f- they finally get invented at the beginning yeah. of the Iron Age or something. But it does seem like a really, it's, I mean, a mitten is a pretty simple thing to make. Yeah, I mean, I I've even made them and I don't, I'm not very good at making stuff. So <laughs> that's why I get you to get make stuff for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, as you said, it's a fairly simple shape. I mean, it's not as if it's yeah. fingered gloves, it's just a mitten. But But this is it. I mean, how much do you go by exactly what was found and how much do you make assumptions that certain things are pretty simple and would have been used? Yeah, I mean they they had to make some assumptions, and uh, you know I'm I'm glad they tried to stick quite closely to the kit so that it could show the shortcomings here and there. I mean even things like his arrows were only if uh, one or two of them were in a condition that they could have been used. The rest were half made arrows or of different lengths that mm, suggest they weren't mm. all made for him or by him. They might have been taken from someone or he was given some, um, mm. and it. it even his copper axe hadn't properly been work hardened, so it, it, if he tried to fell a tree with it or do any serious cutting, it would have buckled the blade pretty quickly. Just a lot of his kit was not in a state to be readily used. It, it was mm. in a half-finished state, which is quite interesting. And again, that sort of suggests that he was not preparing to go over the Hauslipjok Pass. Um, no, which no. Is where a lot of other finds have been found from the same time period as a single leather uh, legging very similar to Ertzis has also been found in a few other bits and pieces um, mm. so clearly quite a well used pass but um, we just got nothing again as complete as uh, the Ertzi assemblage mm. that's interesting that it's a well used pass because, because that it's uh, it seems from this story in the film that the that this is a one off thing where he's gone and, f- and and followed these men to their tiny settlement and uh, no one, you know, knows about this, about these connections, and it seems seems odd because what we know about about this period and you know early periods and later periods is that they are, you know, you can't live in isolation in a tiny village. You have to have connection with other people, and you you would probably have travelled 
relatively long distances because they'd be by foot to to meet with other people. I mean, not that regularly, but you you know, probably seasonally. Yeah. yeah. And but but there you go. I mean, the what's really interesting. <laughs> Not really interesting. It was a little. I, I was frustrated by it again. Is what was in that box? Yeah. So the the special the special the thing in the box, box, which in the mystery box, which seems to be what the raiders were after when they raided the village. They knew about it. They asked about it. It was called Tineka, and they took it when they found it. And Ertzi was going after them, partly to avenge the deaths of his family, but also to get this back. Uh, it feels like it was sacred to him. He used it in the ceremonies right at the beginning of the film when he was burying the dead and welcoming the baby as well, actually. And I looked, I, when, I, when I saw this, it was a polished bit of stone inside the box, wasn't it? Yeah. And I was like, what? Where has that come from? But he throws it away before he dies. So, you know, <laughs> very yeah, conveniently, it wasn't found on him. Yeah. This <laughs> but is what from is the early this thing? Neolithic. Yes. <laughs> it, was a, it was an heirloom, obviously, from but, Turkey. Yeah, I mean, this, these, alien. yeah. I mean, these obsidian is, I looked it up and, and there are obsidian mirrors, which I never knew about, that have been found at places like Chatelhoyuk in what is now Turkey. And it suddenly turns up with Ertzi in the, in the Chalcolithic. And I'm like, what? Oh, well, where? This is where we might differ because I, I mean, I haven't looked it up, uh, what they put in the film or what they thought they put in the film. Yeah. I thought it was a polished piece of jadeite. Right. So well, maybe I'm assuming green, it's... That might be, just be me. Was it green? So do they get that kind of thing? But well, it wasn't an axe. Not at that time. Certainly not at that no. time. But they, you do get that rock from that area or very, very close to that area. Hence, yeah, I think yeah. it was that and, and the sort of greeny colour. Oh, I didn't think it was green, but then... The early Neolithic, but... Uh, yeah, well, I was talking about the really early Neolithic, you know, like 8,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> or even 8,000 BC, in fact. But maybe yours is more likely. Uh, but I don't know where they got that. Uh, just, uh, yeah, I mean, that's where, you know, having a little bit of English translation might have helped. <laughs> it's like, what is this thing, this uh, this great obsidian thing or this great jadeite thing or whatever? Uh, uh, yeah. So whatever that was. It wasn't found with Ertzi anyway, and it was... because no, he threw it away. Because <laughs> he threw it away at the end, yeah. <laughs> so, it, but it was basically, it's like the, um, what is it that, uh, that is, it's a MacGuffin, like like in a, oh, what's, I can't remember the name of the very, very famous director now, who directed Vertigo and North by Northwest, you know the guy. Oh. <laughs> Why can't I remember his name? Everyone's about? screaming it now at the moment uh, at us. Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, he ha he always had the MacGuffin, uh, which was the kind of, it felt like it was the great point of the film, but it was actually completely yeah. not the point of the film at all. And it, it felt like that, that was their MacGuffin. So it's really interesting to see how, you know, more recent film uh, tropes, um, have got into this story about a 5,300-year-old man. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I, I suppose that's like, always going to be the way. Yeah, of course. And I, I feel like they should, um, and it won't happen because that, that would really be stepping on toes, but I, I feel like that they should have another go at it um, at some point. Do you point. think so? I mm, think so. Yeah. They, 
you can stick very, very tightly to the evidence, not just around Ertzi. And it feels like they researched into Ertzi, but not the world of Ertzi around him. That, it, I mean, as we said, we, we get that really good view of Ertzi and his kit. But when we start to look at the wider picture of the world around him in the film, it starts to come apart a little bit and gets a bit loose in places. Um, yeah, and, I would really know. like to see more, more of a sophisticated view of the, or a view of the people as being much more sophisticated than they were depicted in this. And I was particularly disappointed, really, about the depiction of women and their role in society, which was minimal, it seems. So, yeah, I mean, obviously the story was Ertzi's. It's not the story of his his wife or, or whatever, but... I still think that that could have had a little bit more of a an informed view uh, of uh, yeah of of how that could have could have been yeah, um, shown I'm a bit not better. Sure but, who consulted on it, but I feel like I they should know. have had a much tighter grip on it and kept uh, some artistic license under a tighter leash. Yeah, I kind of almost wish, I almost think that they should have had more artistic license, I think. I think that's what, I I think that storytellers are fantastic at what they do and would have liked to have seen much more plot and yeah, much more of the, of the wider world, as you say, whilst keeping the bits that we do know about real and they did you know the, the his kit was great the fact that he was um from northern italy in that area around bolzano which is where he now is and that he'd gone up into the into the alps and all yeah i think that was all fantastic and maybe more imagination could have gone into in an informed way obviously but more yeah, imagination yeah. got into the story that have been yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, as you said, I I think it just would have made a more well-rounded piece, and I I wonder whether there would have been budget constraints at times. Um, I mean, oh, yeah, we maybe. don't know, and I I ha- I can remember. A, it's looking. a whole difficult thing, isn't it, making a film? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. Mm. So, in all in all, the details with Ertzi were fantastic, and perhaps the rest of the story needs a bit of work. But maybe we, as archaeologists, need to get better at telling that story as well. And we focus in on the detail so often because that's where we're so interested and excited without building up that wider picture of what his world was like. But thank you, James, for talking to me. We could go on and on, but I think we should bring it to an, to a close now. <laughs> Are you? I, I would like for uh, to sh- share your Twitter handle, if I may, and your website on my show notes. Would that be all right? Yeah, that's fine. So if anybody wants to tweet at me or at James, then you'll be able to find those uh, details down in the show notes. And of course, you can get in contact with the Archaeology Podcast Network with any comments as well. Did you see the film? Do you disagree with us? Do you like it? Is there anything else that we missed out talking about because we didn't have time? Do get in touch and let me know. Have you seen Iceman? If not, make sure you get hold of the right film, as there are a few that go by the same name. Get back to me with your thoughts. Maybe you disagree with us about certain things. That's fine. I'd like to hear from you. Next month, we're going to have a Christmas special. 
I'm going to be talking about the history of Christmas traditions and how they're depicted in various novels. So you can take your pick. Maybe you'd like to read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, a classic. Or maybe you quite fancy The Box of Delights by John Macefield. We're also going to be touching on The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. And one of my personal favourites, The Hogfather by Terry Pratchett. To talk to me about all these things, my guest will be Professor Chris Gosden. So tune in. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.